Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. G'day, and welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm Uncle Steve, and I'm here in the podcasting broom cupboard just putting the finishing touches on today's Missed Apex magazine program. During the week, Spanners and Matt put together some great interview segments that I'm sure you're really going to enjoy. But before we get to that, just a reminder that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed, or broom cupboard as the case may be, with the kind permission of our other halves. We may be wrong, but we're first. As I said, today's show is another of our Missed Apex magazine shows with some great F1-related information and interviews. Later, we'll be introducing a new podcast pal, YouTuber and sim racer Aidan Millwood, for a look at the problems that arise on track when the wet stuff starts falling. But first, Spanners caught up with our resident strategy expert, Mike Caulfield, for a deep dive into the various strategy storms that erupted during the season. Hi guys, Spanners here for a magazine show segment. Matt Trumpets is also here. Heyo! And Matt, like me, likes to play along when he watches Formula One. It's not just a TV show for me. I like to immerse myself in every aspect of Formula One. And that's why I always want rules of racing to come out of Formula One, because I like to play referee. I like to pretend I'm the race steward. And that's why I love playing the Whose Fault Is It segment on Missed Apex so much. And then that's the reason we do all the the sim racing and the karting at Missed Apex as well. So I can equate my karting experiences when we do our events and our sim racing to what the drivers are going through. And I can sit there like, oh, I'd I'd never have done that. I wouldn't have gone for that move. Why didn't Bottas defend harder? And I, I find that fantasy element of it very entertaining as well. And one of the very favorite things we like doing on Missed Apex podcast from our armchairs is yelling at the TV 
when we feel like we would have made a different dis- decision on strategy. You should see our WhatsApp group when Mercedes pitted uh, Lewis Hamilton onto the hards, I think at Cota. Everyone went mad. Everyone in our WhatsApp chat knew much better than the Mercedes strategists. And I like being an armchair strategist, but I also know that on a mass scale, that might be annoying for our guest, Mike Caulfield, who of course has been a race strategist for two F1 teams. And thank you for slumming it in the shed, Mike. And I will forgive your Christmas jumper, given your vast experience in F1. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that's not a problem. I mean, it's December, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bit insulted. There's not a lot of Christmas jumpers on shows. So uh, okay. Well, agree, <laughs> agree to disagree. Um, actually, the, we've got some quick fire questions from our listeners, Mike, that we're going to fire at you a little bit later on. But one of the things that really made me kind of hit up your DMs today was a discussion we had last week about what the race strategists would do if this success ballast uh, proposal from from Ross Braun came in in 2026. One of the first things we came up with was, would the strategists even want to be in the lead? It, it, it throws up not just you know things about the ethos of racing and and whether it's sport versus entertainment. One of the thoughts we had was of you guys on the pit wall. You guys must all have been you know seeing this in a very different way. What was your reaction to this potential kind of in race success ballast? Yeah, I mean, it's like anything which is really kind of discussed and promoted. I mean, you kind of pass it over until it starts becoming a bit more of a kind of definitive um, idea. So you, you don't, you tend to, everything that's banded around it, so it's always kind of saying, will this happen, will it not happen? I mean, the best way to look at it, I think, is kind of, it's, almost going a little bit back to a bit of a refueling type of era because Uh obviously when you had in the refueling ones you could go between a two-stop or a three-stop so you're either going for a heavy fill which have a slower car or you're going for more stops with a lighter car so you're you're kind of slightly going back towards those lines um and it just depends on what kind of the ballast levels are going to be as well because ultimately i mean every car at the moment probably slightly different in terms of car weight especially the new regulations this year i mean there's rumors that some cars were close to 30 kilos at the beginning of the season so 30 kilos is almost a second of performance basically 30 kilos Um, over yes yeah Yeah. wow so so um, i mean i think they've got it down by the end of the season a lot of the performance gains was the the kind of weight gains in that one but yeah it's you generally you're looking at 10 kilos is about three times is roughly on, on most circuits so so that's the kind of performance. So that's the kind of ballast you're also having to having to look at in terms of that kind of active ballast or what the, exactly the, the rule would be is 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 it going to be significant enough to 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 make a difference? Um and then also is it kind of is it in a race situation or is it in a quality situation? Because obviously qualifying it comes down, it can be very fine margins. And then it then it also kind of uh does a little bit of little bit of kind of a balance between well how easy is it to overtaking those regulations and therefore mm. qualifying becomes really important or is it like this season where the qualifying's maybe or the overtaking's a bit more straightforward so you actually take that hang of hit and go well I'll take that hit in the qualifying it gives me a bit lower down the grid actually and then I have less balance for the race but it's easy to overtake so that's what I'll do and then it's it's yeah I mean I have a lot of respect for Ross works for Ross for quite a number of years oh there's um, a butt coming I'm not not a butt at all, but um, well, there's a butt. <laughs> I just I just said it. Um, 
But a lot of things he comes out and says, I'm, I imagine it's not very much his ideas, it's ideas which have been pushed to him from within F1 mm. itself, and he kind of just, it's a bit of a soundbite, gets people talking. But, I mean, a lot of things, they have to go through the kind of sporting advisory committee. You'll have all the strategists working, um, looking at the kind of pros and cons for it. More than likely, you'll get the eight or nine strategists and maybe one disagreeing, but all come and say, yeah, this isn't going to make a difference to your racing. We've done these simulations. Everyone will iterate to the same thing. So actually, it's not going to make that much of a difference or it's going to affect the show because it's going to reduce overtakes. So you'll get the teams doing thousands and thousands of simulations, often for their own gain. If they think it's not going to benefit them, they'll obviously try and bias it in a, in a way that it doesn't work. And for, for the teams where they maybe need something a little bit to mix it up, they'll try and bias it one way. But ultimately, you get to the kind of the the decision of will it work, will it won't work. I mean, we had these similar conversations about reverse grids and the kind of sprint races and the kind of qualifying format and everything like that. It's kind of it goes through this kind of same process. And yeah, it's I'd, I'd be surprised if it comes in, but. Who knows? It's a few years away yet. That's that's all very sensible. But but Matt, obviously, we prefer to just jump on the headlines. Like I said to you, I never even clicked any of those articles. I just went from whatever clickbait (laughs) tweet came out on top. Yes, I remember our discussion on Sunday. And since then, another thing has occurred to me is that the whole point, I think, of this original idea of active aerodynamics was because without the electrical side, the MGUH, they will need to find additional fuel savings and they wanted to do it by making the car slipperier down the straight. But if you disadvantage the leading car and I'm asking Mike, this aren't you just throwing away that fuel efficiency you've just created? I mean, I I don't see how it's going to work in the terms most people are imagining it right now. Yeah. I'd agree with you in that sense. Yeah. I I kind of think that people also find a ways for like, yeah, you, you work your strategy around it. Like like we mentioned, you kind of go, well, actually leading the race isn't isn't the way forward. So you kind of yeah. almost, everyone goes really slow. So actually what you'll see is 20 cars not driving anywhere near to the pace, which they can because they're trying to fuel save. Um, they're trying to do what they can do to kind of leave them free to options. Um, yeah, so it's it, it, I expect it's, it'll be a, a case of, of people... Everyone wants to see 20 cars driving at the limit and pushing the cars, and it will push it in the opposite way to that, in my opinion. Um, and I think because you've just got too much disadvantage of leading the race and too much disadvantage in terms of... Like Mario kind of, Kart. Yeah. Like Mario yeah, Kart. Yeah. You don't want to be in yeah. the lead for Mario Kart because that blue shell's coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it's and everyone, like everyone's clever people. Everyone has simulations, and everyone will run and go, right. What's the quickest way to end the race? Right, it's this way. We don't want to have this handicap put on us, so this is what you do. And then or you make a pit stop towards the end of the race and you get in the lead for maybe the last 10, 12 laps and, or something like that. And because you've driven off the pace so much in the early part of the race, but you've got enough fuel and uh, and, it's, it's, and then you can push that out. And it's, yeah. And your handicaps kind of balance out from your fuel levels. It's... Like I said, it's it's there's a lot there'll be a lot of people, clever people have seen that and just gone and picked holes in lots of little bits of it and yeah. Yeah, well, I just had this hilarious mental image because I used to race bikes on a velodrome of like the sprints where they come to a dead stop for five minutes before somebody <laughs> yeah. finally goes. And then it made me think of like some of the DRS zones. We've actually seen this. Yeah. 
Hamilton and Verstappen trying to not lead <laughs> well, the first DRS zone. Yeah. It's like Monza qualifying, isn't it, as well, when everyone piles out of the pits oh, in Q3 and then everyone basically goes from the slowest pace possible because no one wants to lead. And it's, it will be similar to that in in. in number of circuits yeah so actually one of the questions i wanted to ask you as a strategist is what is it like and this is not the most thrilling question in the world but what is it like to get an f1 driver to to drive slowly so uh, you have to spend a lot of the time driving slowly i've spent uh i've spent a lot of time on here talking about why people don't build up a schumacher style gap anymore up front and i guess maybe because there's more safety cars uh you don't want to burn fuel and burn your tires building up a big gap that could just get snuffed out i think to start with you go how much of the race are the drivers pushing flat out and i've got a feeling it's going to be a bit of a depressing answer um yeah it's it's i mean a lot of the topics, like when I was when I so going back one year, so obviously I don't have the experience of this year and the tires this mm. year, but actually the tires are degrading more this year. So I expect it's still a, a big conversation. Is you're going into the race and your main conversation is how much tire management's needed, what compounds need the tire management, what corners do you do that, um, and basically how much time. What's the most efficient way of doing it? So for example, Barcelona a couple of years back is the prime example of a a two-stop two-stop at Barcelona is often not the ideal strategy to do because it's difficult to overtake. Yeah. However, Hamilton made that work perfectly because the one-stop at Barcelona was so marginal that you had to do so much tyre management to get your tyre life to the end, whereas your two-stop, you were then able to push. But you're still in that very much that balance. These tyres are still very much on a kind of knife edge that if you push them too much early on in the stint, they will just give up and you won't they'll probably settle off and the, the pace will be i don't know it's, it's a nominal number but six to six times to a second off their optimum whereas if you bring them in nicely you can get them to go longer and the pace generally remains a bit more consistent on it so yeah in terms of your answer into uh, there's there's always some kind of management going on there's it's it's very unusual for it to be that kind of flat out you can do kind of quality style laps you can kind yeah. of push it down there, there is the occasional one where you've got the tight the kind of a hard compound you you've got nothing to lose basically you can go right try and catch him Frank. but often you do it that but again you take too much out the tires by the time the caught the car in front or you catch the car in front you mm-hmm. start to have that drop off you don't have that performance edge to then make the overtake so it's i, it's, just... I mean the, the last race of the season was probably a prime example yeah. of kind of that one stop two stop how tire management done successfully worked against how it wasn't basically so i'm imagining the the post-race debrief where you're going yeah really good performance uh kevin or or, or roman or what, what you had in your, your time at Haas, and you go that was great but here's the areas of the race where you needed to have driven slower and i, I can just see their little faces just you know dropping you know you go to the next race and go right so i want you to i want you to not do race cars and these guys yeah. have been trained from like age dot to go as fast as possible and yeah 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 it's it's, it's definitely it's, it's hard in that sense i think it's um they they never they always wanted the strategy where you kind of go and, yeah i can drive flat out but like like i just said it's, it does never any drive flat out does a kind of well you still need to make it to this lap <laughs> and if you're driving flat out and you come on back to me and say i need you to make it to lap 18 to make this work and you push really hard and you get to lap 12 and go now my tires are gone then you're just in a bit of a no man's land. So there's still that kind of balance, but 
you still had to make it a little last to a certain point. Um, and then there's and then there's the other aspect of it where they kind of they understand it. They understand like the management. They understand, but the race kind of point is is a lot of it is management based, and it's you have to again sell it to them in terms of right. You can do this strategy, which has less management. It's not as strong, but you can push harder. But it requires this, this, and this to happen. You will have to overtake cars, or we can try this manage approach, um, which has one less stop, and then it'll put you in this position. And it's, it's sometimes a really difficult call to make because often. Obviously, if someone on the two-stop comes sailing past you when you've been doing management, then they're not happy. But at the same time, it's often, but they haven't done the management well enough either. So <laughs> it's kind of that. It's, yeah, because they're, they're having to do the management, it's really specific in terms of you have to make this lap work and you have to do this much and these tires have to be done by this point. And then there's only that certain window where you can kind of convert and go, all right, it's not working. Let's go on to this, the other like, plan B approach. Okay, so now... I'm just going to be upfront. I'm not asking this about Romain or Kevin, but I'm asking this based on a series of radio conversations I heard between Ricardo and his McLaren engineer when I was listening back to things for a race review, which is, first of all, when you're developing a strategy, how involved is the race engineer in that? Like, do you, you, you sit there and you tap at your keyboard and you're like, aha, we've got a podium and you hand it to the race engineer and he looks at it and he's like, yeah, yeah. If only my driver could do half of what you're asking. Or any driver. Yeah, no, this I mean, is a hypothetical engineer, not used. Yeah, we're not trying to get yeah, you into no. trouble, Mike. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. no. But like the, one of the jobs of the strategist is but you need good relationships with your race engineers and you need that understanding. And often you, you basically answer, you answer the question yourself about like, you come up with a strategy and the first one you you'll approach them and go do you think this is possible with like the data because they've obviously delved in all the data from free practice they know the driver they know the way it's like in your case like is it possible for him to do this is it like often in practice sessions in on the friday you'll have done some a certain level of kind of management anyway and you'll see what your pace was doing this level of management or you've seen what your pace was doing no management at all vice versa the degradation of the tires so you already have kind of like a a relative idea of what the driver's capable of if, if these certain levels, and you can put it to the race engineer and say, if we can manage this, this is o- this is open. What do you think? And there are certain drivers who are more capable than others um, to do it, and then there's more who are more open to do it. And then it's it's yeah, it's some people can drive faster while managing, and because it's really again really critical of where you manage the tires and. Certain tracks are set, uh, have certain different characteristics because obviously it depends if it's front limited, rear limited, and certain drivers can prefer an understeer car, certain drivers mm. prefer an oversteer car. So this is why you need this kind of relationship with the the race engineer to have that understanding of how good is he at doing this. Like, and you build up that relationship with the driver as well. So like, I'm not going to name names, but I have, I had certain drivers who I knew weren't very good in certain aspects and would prefer certain strategy. Now, that other drivers go, I could try something with him. So it's um, it, it's 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 basically encompasses the kind of the team aspect of it behind the scenes. Yeah. So the strategist has to know everything, really. Like, not doesn't know everything in terms of full details, but has to know roughly everything and kind of what's going on, like in terms of engines, in terms of tires, in terms of drive performance. <laughs> like, you need to know what's there. Like, because the worst thing is you plan the strategy and then suddenly the engine guy goes. <laughs> 
yeah, we're really struggling for cooling. <laughs> we need to go to this. Um, we need to do this lift and coast. And it just really kind of messes your strategy up by doing that. So you you need to have that full picture of what's, what's going to happen in the race. So I'm sure you won't be surprised that I had a second part to this question. And and no. this is, again, these, these messages I listened to were literally, it was like one turn in the race. And every time he went through this turn, his engineer would come on and say, okay, Daniel, I'm going to need you to manage your rear tires a little bit more there. They're just sliding about two and a half percent too much lap after lap after lap. What was it? So uh. as a strategist, if you have a driver getting into difficulty where they, they are open to trying this, but it turns out that due to the circumstances of the race or, you know, just the vagaries of the weather on the day, they can't make it happen. How do you, as a strategist, respond during the race? Like, how hard is that to adapt on the fly? It, it, this, I think it very much depends on on where you are in the race and what type of race it is. Like, you'll, you'll know this information and then, and obviously the strategist will probably be talking to the race engineer well, between the race engineer talking to the driver. And then the question the strategist will ask will go, right, with this, can he make it to this lap? Because we need to make it to this lap um, to, to make this strategy work. And if the race engineer then kind of looks at the data or speaks to the driver and gets this kind of feedback, he's like, no, it's like, right, what can we do? And you need to obviously, you have these kind of crossover points of, mm. right, we needed to do this to make a one-stop work. We need to either, to get onto an optimum two-stop, we need to stop on this lap. So you don't want to be stuck in this kind of middle ground of, right, the optimum two-stop was lap 14, the one-stop was lap 24. We've pushed it to lap 19, and, and we're, we're kind of like <laughs> in the in a bit of no man's land in that. So you need to get that information as early as possible. And then that's why this constant communication to the race engineer. Yeah. And possibly with this kind of McLaren one is that they still think there was possibility of making it to this lap. It just needed to start doing it and possibly it was getting close to this decision point of this crux where you have to change over to this other strategy. So it's just like, right, just see if you can do it. Just see if you can. Right, you can't do it. Okay, we need to convert and do this. Are you guys even and, needed though? Because we hear it a lot in, in commentary and in um, and podcasts like us that there's some drivers do the strategy from the cockpit, Mike. <laughs> and like, so, you know, you're talking about all that strategy and then George Russell comes on and, and he's very vocal with, with his engineers about, no, I, I'm just going to keep going. I don't, I don't need new boots. Just keep me on these. And then, of course, Leclerc and Sainz have been doing a lot of that. Vettel was said to be the chief strategist at Ferrari. Um, but, you know, that, A, that must be frustrating from a, a strategy point of view. Um, but also, like, do, do they ever have any genuine insight? And, and are you able to change around what they say? Or do you just kind of sit there and, like, in a huff? I'd be like, just tear my notes up and go, well, what do I know? You know, point to my degree. You know, what do I know? I mean, it's... The... <laughs> It's interesting one for like at times some if they're saying like a tire can go to X X point, I can keep going. Mm. Like sometimes that can be good information because you may be going into a race with a bit unsure of what this tire can get to. And like you've gone into it thinking like a medium can last until lap twenty six and it's a seventy lap race mm. and therefore you don't really want to get that put the hard on. But you you get close to this point and he's going, This is feels really fine. You obviously then have the benefit of the relative lap times. And you kind of go, well, all right, we've seen other people on the soft, they're really struggling, so we still have to go to the hard, so you need to go to this tyre. And that's when they usually put them on and they come back and go, well, that was that was rubbish. Um, this tyre's rubbish. This tyre this will be over. And you're just like, well, yes, but nothing would have happened. And, and you can't have these conversations in the race, so you never have to, like, you always hear the the kind of 
the initial reaction to it because they don't know the full picture. And then after the race, you go through it to them and say, well, no, if we continue on this, this would have happened. And uh, then, and that's that's what it's done. So it's... um Yeah. Yeah. It can be frustrating at times, but again, it's I always kind of see... It's, and I'm not. I don't, I don't. The last thing I want to do is like be here is criticizing my like fellow colleagues and stuff like that. It's because there's definitely going to be mm. some drivers who are stronger than others, and even some teams around the route potentially stronger than others, and put certain thoughts in the mind and kind of certain kind of criteria like what going in. So you might have had this conversation with drivers who seem very on board with it, understands what the plan is. You're going into the race, and then you've not realized that like someone else has had a sat down with him and said, well, I saw this, we should maybe try this. <laughs> and it, that's the frustrating thing is if something like that's happened and then he's, kind of, he's like, where's this coming from? And he kind of said something. But as a strategist, you always try and go into a race with all the possible plans. So like if George is coming on and saying, these tyres are doing this, you've hopefully already got kind of a scenario of, well, okay, if this is happening, we can do this. But if this is happening and this is also happening, it's still better for us to convert. And yeah, but they yeah, can only... They, have, yeah, sorry, Mike. Sorry, slight lag on there. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but obviously they've only got access to one car's data. We've got a really yeah. good follow-up question here to steal from the quickfire ones that we got off Twitter. And it's Michael Brown who says, how long does it take to realise what the right tyres and strategy is? And also, what does it feel like when you've made the wrong call on the tyres and you're halfway through a race and there's nothing you can do about it? What's the dynamic like uh, of that with the team? But like we were saying, you have that thing where you make the decision or you have, say, another car pit onto the tyre that you were fully planning, like we're going on the medium, and then you see you see a McLaren go on the medium and it's a disaster. <laughs> like how long do those things take to unfold? It's... Again, it can be very dependent. It's um, like a lot of it depends on. Hopefully, you've got enough information based on your Friday running, and you've got enough got coming to a weekend with a kind of good idea of how the tire is going to be formed. Your Friday running's kind of kind of confirmed it or just tweaked it a little bit. So going into a race, you you've not got the unknowns. Obviously, with the reduced kind of time you have on a Friday, especially if you lose one car um, for, for an issue or a crash or something, and you lose out a bit of information or you've got not had a representative session, then that's when you can start going into a race going, okay, right, this time might do this, but it also might do this. Based on past history or past um, expectations, we're, um, we're expecting this to do this. And then you see someone else fit in and go, okay, that's <laughs> not what we were expecting. But then also at the same time is different cars have different performances on different tyres. Um, so you you literally have it a case of, say, the Red Bull's really good on the kind of softer compounds. The Mercedes are better on the medium compound, or like Alonso's been really good on the hard compound. Um, so sometimes you'll see a car fit it, and be like, ah, that's not really a representative car for us to make the decision on. We know we struggle on these tyres, so we want to avoid it. And that's probably the hardest one, is where you literally see every car go onto the hard tyre and go, no, we can't run that tyre. So you don't run it, and then you go, yeah, we should probably try that tyre. Um, <laughs> And it, it doesn't it doesn't work out. So, in terms of that kind of, yeah, if you fit a tire and it doesn't work, and you go, wow, like, and there's nothing you can do about it. Unfortunately, that is the case. There's nothing you can do about it. You'll just have a whiny driver. You'll make an extra pit stop, <laughs> and you'll be on a suboptimum strategy. And therefore, in the race, yeah, you, you you kind of either hang it out and hope that there's a safety car which kind of brings you back into play, um, or that the tire picks up. 
or something happens with it. But ultimately, you've kind of not got your predictions right and you've not got your kind of going into the race, tyre curves, tyre models, read of the situation. So then you look at, right, how could we do this better next time? And that's the that's the main one on, on that aspect of it. But yeah, it's, it's, it is a bit horrible sometimes when you fit a tyre and it just looks rubbish and it, you're just like, well... It's even worse when you know it's going to be rubbish and the driver's shouting to fit it, and then you oh. kind of go, "All right, we'll fit it then. <laughs> we'll fit was... it then." And then he comes on and goes, "This, I don't." Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But but I guess that the driver would learn then, kind of next time that changes the dynamic in the team. Yeah. And again, it goes back to this kind of you have these conversations on the morning of a race. You you tell them what you expect on the tires. You you give them the full overview of what we're expecting with it. Um, so hopefully they they have these kind of um, thoughts going into into that race. It's been a bit of a thing to pick on Ferrari strategy. And and they did seem to really struggle with their tire modeling relative to like the other top teams, at least watching from the outside. They made a lot of what seemed like wrong tire calls. But what I wanted to ask is how do you set up or, or what do you think about um, – to use information that happens because you were talking about it already in the race. So like Williams goes onto the hard tire, everybody sees it's rubbish. And then Ferrari put both their drivers on the hard tire. Anyway, how do you recognize that information and use it for yourself? Uh, like, how do you set up? Do you have like, like intern Bob sitting there watching lap times from <laughs> Williams when they go onto the tire? Like, like how do you set up to take in information that data that is generated during the race lap time wise? to make better decisions so um yeah i mean is so i won't quite say intern bob like it often it'd be um sometimes it's the guy on the pit wall who do it but yeah there'll generally be one person on the strategy group who will who will be kind of designated with a competitor task for that. so he's maybe not in charge of either the strategy car but he's in charge of kind of looking at competitors in general and one of the things you can you'll go through kind of a list pre-race of these are the things we need to be aware of. This is the things we're unsure of. So if you see a car going onto a hard tyre, the first thing you go is, right, what's the offset of that tyre? Um, obviously, you don't know kind of what the wear life or degradation is until there are a number of laps into it. But you can generally see what their pace is. And they're obviously the best one is if they've got one car on, say, the hard and one car on the medium, you know what generally what their kind of pace is. If they've maybe got an offset in driver pace, you then apply that and then you, you have kind of overview that one. I can kind of imagine that Ferrari point of view is, but they'll have someone someone looking at it. But potentially, like I said, but maybe they don't think Williams was a representative car for themselves to, to look at. So they see Williams going on to a hard tyre and they go, well, no, nah, it's, nah. it's fine. They, they often struggle on that, where they're often good on it. And then they go onto it and go, okay, we're also rubbish on it. So, um, yeah, and it's so sometimes it's, it's kind of can be that, that aspect of it is that you just. Yeah, you look at certain cars, and some cars are just you don't feel a representative in terms of performance, downforce level, etc. But you get the same kind of tire performance from it. Okay, well, I think we'd like to move on to a couple of quick fire questions right now. And my first one for you comes from Ing Zero, and I love this. Is there a particular track that is especially interesting or important strategy-wise, excepting Monaco, because we have things that we can't say about Monaco here on this show? <laughs> <laughs> okay um yeah so no it's, it's a good question i think they all have the kind of little little characteristics i always found for myself that 
Barcelona was always an interesting one. Um, and it's not really, it's, it's, it was, it can very much depend on what ties are being brought to the circuit and what ties are kind of um, go. But Prelli always seemed to do, I, I guess, potentially it's due to the amount of testing he used to do at Barcelona, but it was always that borderline one stop, two stop there. And it, because it was difficult to overtake, it always forced everyone to kind of go on to that. You want that one less strategy mm. because it's not easy to overtake. But the tyres were on such an edge. So it's kind of that that borderline of, right, how much management, again, going back to the management, yeah. how much management do you do? And it's like, can we make this work? Is it still going to be borderline? And you've got to make these decisions quite quickly on the fly. And safety cars can make a big impact on that one. So I always found Barcelona, it has a bit of everything as well. It has the slow speed, it has the quick, fast speed. It's, it is kind of a general circuit, which has a bit of everything in there. So I always found that one was a tricky one. Um, Singapore is obviously, has it's always safety cars. So that one's always, you always took a minute. Obviously, you can never plan and you never know when a safety car comes. But you also start looking into the data of safety cars in Singapore and you yeah. kind of go, well, it's always had one. And often in Singapore as well is a safety car often brings out a close second safety car as well. So you have that. I think there was one season, a few on back where you had about three in quick succession. Uh, 2017? We, possibly, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, but it is one where we were running quite well in the race. I remember it. It could be 17 or 18 there. But, and like the first restart, we were on a tech ties. We didn't put under the safety car. And the first restart, we were fine, held position, another safety car tire temperatures dropped again next restart lost the position but we're still doing okay another safety car and then by that third safety car the tires were just dead because they were just <laughs> lost so much temperature yeah. but you kind of you were then you then yeah you were just a sitting duck right but like it, it was an interesting one in that so that one always had that little bit of aspect to play into it um and then i guess any track which is um has, has made changes to like the track surface or or like a bit profiling of the corners. I mean, you go into that and straight away it's it's you have a lot of historical data. And you're like, mm. right, how much of this applies and how much of it doesn't? And well, you kind it, of go Istanbul 2020 when they had the the, the oils oh, yeah. on the. Oh, I mean that was that was a yeah. I mean that was oh it was it was awful but great at the same time. But I mean <laughs> we knew it was going to be bad and then going we were literally doing the track walk on the Thursday. And you're feeling you're sleepy under your feet, and you're going, "Christ, this is this is going to be a nightmare." And it was a nightmare, but um, but then it, and then it rained as well, which just made it absolutely yeah a, another yeah. level in that. And then yeah, that, I think that brings it on to other ones. There's certain tracks as well where wet tires are very different to performance to what you do on 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 a normal track. And Istanbul is one of them. But the combination of the nature of the the track, time of the year. The wet tires just didn't run out, and you could just run them and run them, and it's something which you, we've not really seen before. But you kind of go, "Well, you can just run these tires," and it's, um, yeah, it's it, it was interesting. So, yeah, every track has has its little intricacies. I think. Oh, that's a great answer and and a great question uh, as well, Matt. I think we've got time for uh, to sneak in one last quick fire question. Okay, um, I have so many good ones to choose from. This is a bit difficult, but we're going to take from Tom a question about blue flags. How much does that affect your strategy calls, not just for the leaders, if you're coming through, but also for the back markers that have to deal with them? Massively, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, and it's a story from my own career. So obviously, I went from Mercedes to Haas, and obviously Mercedes, when I was there, don't think 
can't remember us ever receiving a blue flag, apart from maybe one race when Nico had a problem with his airs where he was quite slow. Um, yeah, and then obviously I went to Haas, and while we were relatively competitive, obviously the leaders mm. were going through, and I think it was about my fourth race there at Sochi, and I was going for the undercut against um, against the car, and I made a pit stop, and I pitted straight into a into a blue flag, basically. Um, and then obviously you lose, then lose about three, four seconds is, is a, the time loss for, for a blue flag. And therefore the chance of an undercut goes and, and it's gone. And it's that. So a lot of it then plays into, into, your, into your decisions. You'll be looking at the window and you go, I've got a pit stop window here, but I can't fit it because if I pit now in two laps time, potentially Hamilton's going to come through or Verstappen's going to come through and, uh, and then I lose time and and then I, I've, I don't get a chance. Or if yeah. you're trying to like prevent the undercut, so like often that's like if you've got a car crate up front, you don't want to be undercut, so you'll make that pit stop, and that's potentially the worst. You pit straight into a blue flag, you've lost that position. Yes, and then and then going back to our worst days of of house when we were really struggling, you used to get it was it was a nightmare in terms of you used to a lot of the decisions were trying to pit around blue flags, so you didn't get them, and you try you'd make a decision, you'd pit. And you think, fantastic, oh, I'm about to get a blue flag, I'll pit. And you go, great, I've, I've not got a blue flag there. Oh, no, they've just pitted as well, so now I've got a blue flag. And now <laughs> I'm going to get it twice because of the way it happens. Oh, actually, I've just got the blue flag, and yeah. then they're, they're going to pit again. And oh, So, yeah, it was oh, and because man. they come up on you so quick as well at that point. It's, um, yeah, that was so blue flag. While it doesn't really come into your kind of pre-race strategies as much, um, just because you you never know exactly the pace of the cars and how much they're battling, and obviously that takes mm. a bit of um, time to what we're kind of going. But once you're actually in the that live situation, it's something which doesn't come across on TV either because you'll be watching someone going, "Why hasn't he gone for the undercut yet?" Or "Why hasn't he gone mm. for like?" Um, surely it's about he's in his pit window, his time, and it be because there's potentially in a lap, two laps time, three laps time, a leader's going to come through, and then. If yeah, he makes his actually... pit stop, he's going to potentially lose a position because of it. And especially with how close that midfield is, it, it can be quite quite damaging. And yeah. it also as well, like later on in the race, it can be that kind of case of it. You may tr- you may actually convert your strategy to a like a two stop strategy. If you if you see a big group of blue flags come in, you go well, actually if I take a pit stop here, get into some fresh tires, I'm not going to lose like ten seconds of time with these blue flags. So I can pit. I'm already say I'm behind this other car I'll pit go into a two stop if he doesn't take this same turn he's going to lose this 10 seconds of blue flag so then I'm only 8-9 seconds behind him on fresh tyres potentially I might catch him up now actually with this so there is that aspect of it as well so yeah, yeah blue flags has a huge effect oh. um, it's oh. also the rule I'd love to get rid of um, being in power <laughs> Now, well, not no, so much no, before no. but now <laughs> no 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 but like I kind of feel but in terms of actually for a leader strategy point of view, if blue flags are gone, they have to change their strategy because then it does become a point. It's like, I'm going to catch some back markers here. I'm going to catch his group of back markers here and I'm not going to go through. So is it better for me to pit stop or to try and get through them and having to overtake them? And mm. and I kind of think sometimes that maybe now like it's even more relevant because you've got cars who can overtake like better. Yeah, but, yeah. but actually, it's not a case of you're going to get stuck behind a yeah, like Monaco, obviously. It Monaco, worked, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you're like, you're stuck behind Latifi for 17 laps. And, uh, and then, you know, oh, not anymore, unfortunately. But um, yeah, but 
it's it's definitely something I'd I'd, I'd consider uh, or do at least do with some evaluation on what effect it would have because I do think it would it would definitely add a new strategic element to to both your backmarkers and your leaders as well. I'm just imagining the conflict in the future making of uh, Caulfield the movie. You know, where you make that transition, you make that mistake on race four and someone turns to you on the pit wall, this ain't Mercedes no more, Caulfield. You ain't, you ain't ass now, you know. <laughs> Look at the arrogance of him. And then that's a conflict point. And then you and that northern guy become best friends in the end, I imagine. Is it Sean B? Yeah, yeah. All my, my, <laughs> my go-to northern is all Sean Bean. And he, he has to obviously die tragically at the end, presumably murdered. Uh, sorry, Matt, <laughs> sorry, Matt, you were trying to get in there for a sec. Well, I was thinking you answered our last quick fire question from ed moses which is what change would you make to randomize to randomize things a little bit that the fia or fom might approve of that's not like sprinklers or blue shells as is currently being discussed but it sounds like you would just get rid of blue flags to shake things up Uh, i mean like i said like like every like going back to an earlier question that everything goes through quite a serious amount of simulations and analysis and it could turn out that it could actually be a total disaster, but it is something I looked at quite often. But yeah, I don't. I mean, I watch IndyCar quite a lot these days, and it, it does seem to have like a kind of a, a good effect in it, in 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 there where they don't have to blue flags. And yeah, if you've got the pace advantage as leader, and you've got cars which you can now overtake, and you've got that little bit of an offset in terms of tires, then I don't see why it doesn't offer that additional bit of. Um, strategic element and it, it does mix up the races as well because if you don't get that right at the front then you might be like yeah you might be seven eight seconds in the lead and but you don't get this call right or you inadvertently pit into a group who mm. just also pitted and then and then, and then someone in second place can then take an advantage so yeah in terms of randomizing things until <sighs> everyone works out the best way of doing it yeah it but work. you know you're gonna have like alonso fighting every lapped you know every lapped position to the death in his aston martin next season and he would you know they, that that would be kind of like a way to settle old scores kind of thing for for the back oh, yeah. i can see that getting messy but maybe we're maybe we should all be here for it uh mike caulfield uh ex f1 strategist and i'm and uh suspiciously lurking around the paddock as well these days and uh, i hope we see you back in a team at some point soon uh well maybe not too soon because we've benefited from having you here in the shed so i'll just say thank you very much for your time Uh, i don't believe we can follow you on social media so we will put your home address in the show notes below (laughs) (laughs) Uh, mike coalfield f1 strategist thank you for making us better f1 armchair strategists cheers mate If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks, Banners. F1 strategy always seems like high-speed black magic to me. I mean, there's just so much to consider and so little time to do it in. The stress levels must be enormous. I guess that's why there's no old strategists around. Next up, Spanners and Trumpets sat down with YouTuber, content creator and sim racer Aidan Millwood for a look at the perils of racing in the rain and what we might be able to do to improve the situation for both the racers and the fans. Hi guys, Spanners here, and this is part of our off-season. We're bringing you interesting segments. That's the aim anyway. Matt is also here. Hey. Hi Matt, thanks for joining me or remaining with me, depending on where this segment ends up. I'm not in control. Thanks to Uncle Steve for putting these together from the Mist Apex broom cupboard. But recently, I have been finding myself curious about why so much is going wrong during rainy days in Formula One. Monaco this year, Spa 2021, it all seemed like a bit of a a mess and people didn't seem to know exactly what the plan was going forward. Certainly viewers didn't understand. And it felt like in the olden days, the Knights of Yore would just mount their soggy steeds and go to battle in the rain and the snow and fire. Uh, But it turns out it is all down to the tyres and how they behave in the rain. And since no one on the Mist Apex crew is even remotely interested in tyres, we've had to call in outside help. So today in the shed, we're going to make a new friend and we're going to introduce you to streamer and sim racer and YouTube content creator Aidan Millward, who was introduced to me by Kyle Power. And I liked his content so much, I wanted to introduce him to all my missed Apex friends. Aidan, thanks for joining us in the shed. Oh, it's uh, good to be here. It's something I don't do very often, but any opportunity is a good opportunity. So uh, I'll try to answer any questions you've got. <laughs> As in you don't go outside of your own content bubble very often, because I'm, um, I'm the same with leaving the house. I Weirdly, I don't watch any of the other F1 YouTubers. Really? I try to pretend they don't exist. I don't want to end up saying what they've just said. (laughs) I'll just punch my monitor. Oh, well, we've got a solution to that. And what me and Matt tend to do is we just hit record as soon as we can after a race so that we're just spouting our ignorance into the void very early. And thus, we don't even get a chance to to hear what the, the official F1 pundits say. 
yeah, that is probably it's one way of doing it. But you also run the risk of uh, that whole I need to be first to get the content out, so you end up or being chatting, wrong, chatting stuff that's quite wrong. I'm, I'm happy yeah. to leave stuff for about three or four days before I end up doing it because then <laughs> everybody else has said what they need to say. All the experts have had their bit to say, and I can go, yeah, I agree with that, or I don't agree with that. Okay, well, it's a good anyway. job. It's a good. It's a good job. Our motto isn't literally uh, "We might be wrong, uh, but we're first. Uh, but we will try to be right here. Now that we've got an expert on the panel, um, tell us a bit about your YouTube channel first, because I, w- I was looking at your your racing, and despite using monitors and not correctly using VR, uh, you do seem quite quick. Uh, well, I don't use VR because it it makes me violently motion sick. <laughs> um, you know, because I've, I've got to have the old peepers on, so it's. Quite a quite an experience using VR, but it's just it's just something I've been doing for a while. And I started out doing the sim racing stuff, but then ended up falling into the motorsport history stuff mm. with a a video I did driving the Andrea motor car from nineteen ninety two. So I, I told a little bit of the story about it, and it's like, well, this is mental. So I ended up telling the story, and then it's just just roll from there really. And uh, I do the the sim racing stuff from time to time, and I got to I got the opportunity to jump on the. Uh, the the lockdown racing sim racing stuff and ended up doing all right in that uh i don't talk about that experience at all ever to anybody so uh, <laughs> oh, i would it's uh it was quite mad it's like that's bruno spangler in my rearview mirror okay right this is happening but yeah. carry on doing that and uh i kind of want to do some more stuff with that and I, I have got something in the works for next year because it'll be the 25th anniversary of toka 2 so i figured i might oh. try and do the 1998 BTCC season in GTR2 or something like with the Super Touring mod. See, I don't want to get too much into Free um, content <laughs> into sim racing or or, or video games as, as Toka was uh, because people get upset with that. But I just discovered that my whole gaming experience is a lie because I was thinking about this new success ballast thing that Ross Braun was talking about, um, making the front car nerfed a little bit so that the rear cars can catch up. And I was saying to the guys, oh, that's just like the Porsche Challenge on PS1 in 1997 and Brad and Alex were like no like nearly all of those arcade style racing games did it including Tocker had a a success ballast if you were the front car and I feel like my whole gaming career is a lie yeah they've only just got rid of that in the touring cars so oh. the, the limited hybrid well I say hybrid limited curse <laughs> boost but it's uh I don't know if they're going to try and bring that back because they've just ended up probably it's a bit too OP at the minute. You get one driver winning all three races. It's kind of yeah. not how they how they wanted to do it. But at least they can run in the wet. Ah, and running in the wet is exactly what we want to talk to you about. So, what? Why does it? Why did it seem like such chaos in Spa? And why did it seem like such chaos in Monaco this year? I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, and I understand that safety standards in the olden days and the cars were slower and different. But it really did feel like every time there was rain in the olden days, we all rubbed our hands together with glee and went, here we go. Uh, whereas now, w- when there's rain on the forecast, actually fills me with a little bit of dread because you go, well, they're so desperate to start within a TV window, yet they also seem uh, crippled by uh, safety considerations and whatever's going on with the tyres that actually it, it makes for terrible TV now. What's happening, Aiden? Well, you go back to, um, I mean, the, the big one for that, which was Suzuka 2014. Um, apparently, I, I, this is rumour, I don't know if it actually happened, but apparently Charlie and Bernie said to the Japanese organisers, 
can we start the race a little bit earlier to try and avoid this typhoon that's rolling in? Japanese culture is as such that if you say that you're going to turn up at three o'clock, as you know, we're filming this just after two o'clock in the afternoon. You said come for two o'clock. I was here before two o'clock. Yes, uh, you've committed to that. You cannot change or deviate. That's why the public transport is so good and always on time because they say right, yeah. this train is turning up at three o'clock in the afternoon. It's going to be there, um, and they they couldn't come to some sort of an agreement to settle look, fans are going to be turning up they can't change it at the last minute yeah, so on and so forth and- you just have to be a bit sensitive that matt is a musician and this is all brand new information to him he had no idea that's how timings worked me, me too <laughs> <laughs> i've got an audio engineering degree so uh, it's uh it's it's weird how all this it's weird how many musicians and audio engineers and people like that are involved in this kind of thing isn't yeah, it? But, yeah, uh, yeah it's natural but then yeah and then obviously jewel had his horrific accident which okay there shouldn't have been that tractor there martin brundle did exactly the same thing in 1994 got actually got in trouble with the fia for saying you can't do that fast forward to well say fast forward rewind to 1997 and that is actually the first time that a grand prix started behind the safety car is it wet weather yeah as recently as that 1997 Mm -hmm. as far as i'm aware there might be an anorak in the in the audience going no it was actually the 19 um following year 1998 worst conditions david Coulthard drops it on a on a drain cover oh. and we know what happened next so so if anyone hasn't seen the, the spa 1998 lap one that was incredible and that's quite a long time ago now i'd have said that was way more recently if you'd have asked five years next year 1998 so yeah it was um so coulthard loses it after turn one and then goes down the hill yeah no one can see him i think 14 cars in the end are involved in that pileup 14 cars and then rossett deciding he was going to go full eye racing yellow flag i'm just going (laughs) to gun it and risk it and just plows into the back of it and of course in those days as well there was spare cars so yeah. there was people running back to trying to get to the t car and if you're the number two driver you have to hope that the number one driver hasn't also wrecked their car because yeah. the t car will be set up for him and given to him yeah so we then damon won that race but in that race we saw the reason why races tend to not happen today because I think it was going down the hill between No Name and Puon. Uh, Schumacher goes to pull out of the spray behind Coulthard. Oh, yes. You, you watch the footage. He does pull back in a little bit, smacks into the back of the McLaren, three wheels. And then it was like WWE. It was like <laughs> Schumacher going down the... And apparently, I've read Coulthard's autobiography. Mm. And he's he, he obviously talking about that. And I think it's probably the, the bit that everybody skips to. And he, he said something to the effect of, I don't know why Michael was coming down the pit lane to punch me. I still had my helmet on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's just like, you'd be an idiot to punch someone who's still got, but if you're angry, you're angry. I think uh, if like, you're newer to Formula One, that is probably just worth one, just going into the YouTube archives, yeah. isn't it? And, and seeing if you can find some kind of highlights reel, um, because that was a, an incredibly dramatic race. But you say that this is, did this kind of wake people up to saying, well, hang on a minute, maybe we should be starting under the safety car more. I, I think a little bit. Um, obviously the wheels back then were smaller. Um, and, and, and during the, the 2021 Belgian Grand Prix, I think some of the drivers like Russell, like Verstappen, like Hamilton, I think Vettel as well were saying, if it was just me out there, it'd be fine. Like the grip level wasn't fine. It's it's the spray. Yeah, so the grip level was okay. 
yeah, I mean, there probably would be a little bit of aquaplaning because there is going to be if there's a, a puddle or, or whatever. But if you can't see the lights of the car in front of you, then it, it's like trying to land in thick fog. It's like, is that the runway or is that someone's house that I'm approaching? <laughs> it's what am I looking at? If I can't see the guy, Lando, I think it was Lando, wasn't it? In qualifying or practice, spun at the top of Radion. Yes. Um, and then you just got to think, well, hang on a minute. We're, we're saying that this has happened, but two years prior to that happening, Hubert mm. in dry. Yeah. And, and-, if, and if there was a fatal there, the, I guarantee the first thing anyone would be saying on social media is, how is this allowed to happen? Yeah. Uh, that was a scary one, the Norris one. If, yeah. uh, Matt, do you remember this is this was audio part of um, uh, Sebastian Vettel's uh, renaissance, as as Uncle said, wasn't it? That's where he sort of pulled over to make sure that Norris was okay. But I think everyone had that same, that feeling, that horrible feeling. As soon as you see debris at the top of the hill, you know, you think of Hubert coming back onto track. Yeah, well, I mean, and there had been really a campaign to try and fix the barriers to keep that from happening from, uh, I believe, a sports car wreck. I mean, this is not even an issue at the top of that hill limited to Formula One. But I'm interested that you're focusing so much on visibility because it because now you're pointing out that it's not just in recent times, which is sort of what the reporting has led us to believe, but Back to the late 90s, visibility uh, in the wet and obviously in the midst of crashes with lots of smoke is clearly a safety issue. Um, do we know if the FIA is thinking about doing anything? I did see something, I did see something about these um, mud guards that they yes. want to put in because it, it, it's... I don't know if you've ever driven down a motorway in the wet and there's a lorry in front of you and it's raining and your wipers can't keep up. Mm-hmm. It, it's practically the same. I mean, there was um, a series back in Britain in the in the nineties. Uh, Damon Hill was being interviewed um, by Clive. Was it Clive Owen? I think it was not Clive Anderson because he's a comedian. I think <laughs> Clive Owen. I think his name was yeah. where he he was interviewing Damon Hill and following him through his uh, his year. And, and he he actually said, "What what do you see from the car in front of you when it's raining?" And Damon just went, "Damn all, nothing." Just, Without even thinking about it, it's. Um, I actually had the 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 experience of being taken around Silverstone uh, with Radical at the beginning of last month, and it was raining that day. It was only drizzling, but even going down the hangar straight by yourself, 160 miles an hour, I found myself having to you know wipe the the visor and yeah. stuff because it's like, hang on a minute. It was, are you able to see anything doing this? Kind I, of thing? I I went down uh, in a production, a race adapted production car, relatively low speed. It was a Peugeot two hundred seven, I want to say, uh, but you know, quick enough. But it was absolutely hoying down with rain, and I I missed turn one, so I missed Abby. And then, and thank goodness, Silver, I will never drive a, a track that hasn't got runoff after that because I just missed Abby and went straight on um, and ended up doing a little spin trying to trying to make sure that I didn't go any further into the wall. But that's in a car with wipers and a big screen. What on earth do they do they do in a tiny cockpit out of a small slit in the visor? If it's as bad as everyone's saying it is, how come we just accept it? You know, why why not just go to say be like cricket and go? If it's really heavy rain and you won't be able to see, maybe we just do it on Monday. That's what uh, NASCAR does, isn't it? It's just Is it? Like, uh, oh, yeah, it's raining a bit too much here, boys. Let's come back do tomorrow. They, do they do so, that, Matt? 
Yeah. Sorry to go to the. Sorry, Matt, you're American. Tell us about NASCAR <laughs> in the rain. I, uh, therefore, I'm an expert on yeah, NASCAR. Yeah, 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 yes, exactly. Of course. Um, they do. Um, but we also get here, uh, especially where they tend to run the races, we also get like big, massive electrical storms, lots of lightning. So that. So they they will do that, and also high winds, which is you know not always ideal when you're running at those speeds so close together. So I think we're getting into the kind of the problem solving part of this. Is, we we do this on Missed Apex a lot, Aiden. You'll have to get on board. We literally we just solve all <laughs> the problems in F1 super easily. Uh, but when you get into kind of the problem solving part of it, so the first proposal is these detachable mud guards, and I'm just waiting for the first team that somehow gets aero parts. On, onto those mud guards. It's, it's, yeah, that's, that's the thing I was thinking is they stick these aero, well, not aero, but these mud guards in behind mm. the the rear wheels, like the uh, like the old uh, Dallara DW12 from IndyCar, where it had the the fairings on the back, and it's like there's going to be some, there's going to be one team where they're going to put those on, and it's going to mess with the the rear part of the floor, even though it's like behind the wheel, mm. and it's going to, yeah, yeah, it's like are these going to be spec. Yeah, you, they, things or, or, they're going to have to be spec, and they're going to have to be detachable, I guess. And will they have to come in and out of the pits to pull them take off them the on and off? Stops, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, Matt, sorry. Yeah, well, I think even the bigger issue here is, one, will that mean the track doesn't dry? Because now we're redirecting spray back down. Oh, yeah. Under what would That's normally be the yeah. dry line created when you move that water. Uh, but even more importantly, I've seen the question raised of, is the spray problem even really coming from the tires? Is it more coming from the diffuser? And I, I don't know the answer to that question, not being a bona, bona fide aerodynamicist. But it immediately occurs to me that, you know, your cockpit is sat in the center line of the car and the wheels are off to the side. So unless unless the spray from the tires is getting sucked into the down into the center line, it seems like to me that the real issue for the driver being able to see the car in front would be spray coming out of the diffuser. And I'm not sure mud flaps is going to solve that problem. That's a good point. Yeah. And I, I, <laughs> I guess also like, okay, we go Matt's super old. I'm 42. Aiden, you look like a, a, a sprightly 28, but I guess you might be a little older. 32. 32. Oh, that's yeah. not bad. So you've still got some hope. Rough, rough paper around. Yeah. 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 Uphill. Yeah. Um, but, uh, in the in the olden days, yeah, the attitude to to safety was 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 different, and there was that kind of um, bravado and machismo, and that people were like, yeah, well, of course, uh, injury and, and death is all part of it. I, I don't think there's that same kind of attitude. There's not that same gladiatorial, um, especially not here on the Missed Apex crew. Yeah. Like, if I could remove all danger from it, it wouldn't affect me at all. So, I think it comes down to like, what's the acceptable risk? And and they've been more risk averse recently with getting the starts going and, and i can't argue with that because I, I i like safety saying so, you know, we have to win every day death only has to win once uh but it doesn't make for good telly does it <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny you mentioned that because i yesterday i did a video about speed limits in the pit lane and how all that started and someone commented it's like how could the, that imola weekend of 1994 12 people were hospitalized two Is people it? died no 12 people from Senna, uh, Barrichello, Senna, Ratzenberger, three oh, yeah, drivers, yeah. eight spectators, a policeman, and three mechanics in the pit lane. It was a, a different time, but that's yeah. not even that, but, that that long ago. But the thing was, Formula One was being beamed into everybody's living room that day. Mm. The face of the sport 
the most famous racing driver at that time dead. So imagine mm. if this had happened today with Hamilton or Verstappen or yes. yeah, the, the, one of those two drivers. Plus now we've got the internet. Think of how quickly Hubert's crash was put on YouTube mm. and Twitter and Facebook afterwards. Yeah. It would be, they, they, they then got to think of TV contracts, sponsor contracts, insurance, legal, all this other stuff. So, so I think it's like, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like when they say, Oh, they don't put Frankie Boyle on TV anymore. They don't put Ricky Gervais on TV anymore because he's too controversial. It upsets people. It's the, it's the producers and the lawyers going, we have not got the time to deal with the stuff that this will bring. So we're just not going to bother because we don't want yeah. to. We're just going to avoid as much of a storm as we possibly can. What you're saying is realistic. It's obviously, you know, it's the cold side of it, isn't it? Which is that yeah. the maths don't add up for, for the lawyers and the PR people. And I can completely understand that. And that's that's fine. I, I, I get that. Um, but reminding me of that day as a 13-year-old, that, that probably explains a lot of why I'm risk-averse with my attitude towards Formula One and why I don't need it. Because 13 is a very influential age, isn't it? Yeah. Where And then suddenly seeing two drivers being killed in, in one weekend. And like you say, not you know, not that, that uh, Ratzenberger's death wasn't a tragedy, but Senna was an absolute icon in the sport. I had a kind of godlike you know, appearance within Formula One. And you go, what? That, it, it, seemed imp- it seemed impossible that Ayrton Senna could suddenly just be gone just like that well and the same I'll, thing happened with jim clark in 1968 they went well hang on a minute if jim clark can be killed in a racing car then i yeah. can be killed in a racing car and that was when mm. they kind of finally woke up to the whole um the whole the whole safety thing it's 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 one of those unimaginable things it's like imagine if messi dropped on the pitch yeah. in the in the world cup they'd be like that's messi or ronaldo or i mean now with pele in hospital it's like it's Pele. It's one of the icons. It's, it can't happen. So, so like, this is it, Matt. I don't think we come across many people with that kind of gladiatorial attitude anymore. So in the context of, of this conversation, you go, well, you can understand they want to avoid as much risk as possible. So it almost becomes, right, what's the safety element? What's the thing they can do to get races going so it's not boring? Uh, it's almost like what's the least worst option? And, and safety car restarts. Everyone complains about that, but at least it gets the the action going. I think in the olden days, you go, oh, if it's a safety car restart, we missed the one good thing in F1, which is the standing start on the grid, because that used to be in the 90s, the only time anything happened. That's not actually the case anymore. I don't know if standing, if safety car rolling starts wouldn't be the end of the world, if, you know, if, if they had them for every wet race. No, but the thing about that that I do like is it gives the drivers a real chance to taste the visibility and let race control know. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones sitting down there. The issue always is, is that, you know, some of the drivers will be trying to either get the race started if it's in their favor (laughs) or get it not started if it's in their favor. So I, I really hope that someone is looking at ways to make visibility better in those conditions so that we can we can start the races when the grip is there for them to actually be racing but but one of the points i saw in an excellent video you made on this a couple of months ago was you know the the grip doesn't seem to be too much of of the issue because i've been sitting here i think probably wrongly going well where's the old uh, monsoon tire you know but if, if the grip isn't isn't really the issue um then you know it's not something you can go to pirelli oh you need to solve this and i think that's a common misconception yeah i think i think the other the other part is that when we're watching it on tv from those angles 
it looks fine. Yeah. Because you can't see the rain on the on the camera. You can't see that they've got all these setups, so it's all protected and from where it's like, well, it looks fine. But it, you actually get down there and it, it looks like something else. I mean, like um, like I was saying, going around Silverstone, the, the driver I was with was taking the wet line through Stowe. And as soon as he got back onto where the dry line would be, rear end of the car wanted to slip. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because of yeah. where where the rubber gets wet and therefore doesn't generate any oh, grip. Oh. And uh, the, going back to the whole thing about yeah. the starts, if it's raining and and you have a 2012 moment like with Grosjean, and that wipes out 13 cars, they then do the race again. There's seven cars remaining on the grid, and then was just going, well, this is boring, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Where, where do you where do you draw the line? Yeah. So actually, look. Like- yeah, if you'd have asked me this 10 years ago and you'd have said, well, let's have more safety car starts to get the race going, I'd have gone, no! But actually, the 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 racing mid-race is so much more... Uh, uh, there's so much more action and more opportunity to race now than there was, say, in the late 90, 90s and early 2000s, that maybe it's not the end of the world. Um, I was brainstorming other things. You know, I the cricket one for me, I'm not a TV producer, but it's like, well... Just wait till Monday, run it on Monday. I'm sure there used to be an option where they could run it on the Monday, but I don't think they ever took it. I, I get that a lot within the comments when they say, I'll oh, just do this, just do that. So, yeah. It's not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> but we're sitting in a shed. Just just, just, just put just put mud guards on them. And it's like, that's, the, that's probably just going to knacker the, the aero of the car and you might end up stalling the rear. Or could something. you? Could you have an engine mode, a rain engine mode that somehow reduced power to make things a little safer? Oh, so you're still going to chuck up spray, aren't you? It's, yeah, I think like the spray is, is the issue. That I know that the wheel, the, the the cuts in the tire are designed to try and flick as much of it away from the tire or away from the track as possible, but it's still being lobbed into the air. And as soon as the wind gets on it and blows it back onto the, it's it's like we're going through the smoke machine at your school disco again, isn't it? You're just not going to be able to see a thing through there. I, I like um, that you touched on uh, going off the racing line in the wet weather. And if you find yourself on a, a rainy day on a cart track, you can you can experiment with this. You can see it. If you try and take the normal racing line, your your tyres just won't bite. And and so you hit the brakes, you, you, you're skidding, because you will. You'll lock the brakes really easily. As soon as you go off the racing line, if you've got the wheel just turned, you'll suddenly go, oh, Oh, there's grip and it bites and it turns in um, because it just, it won't, the, the tyres won't find a contact patch on the slippery, rubbered in parts of the track. They have to wait till you get to the, the unused part of the track. So it's really interesting watching, uh, say, races like 2018, 2019 Verstappen in Brazil, where he just blew everyone away with that second place finish and, and ended up lapping Ricardo. Or when you look at the Monaco Grand Prix between Rosberg and Hamilton, Hamilton ended up lapping Rosberg and you go how come some of these drivers can navigate that and, and others just don't seem to be able to it's almost like Verstappen and Hamilton are both very very really good very at, very good at what they do good at driving race cars <laughs> yeah maybe no it's it's the car it's just the car it's all the car isn't it for both of them always it's always the car <laughs> um, okay so look I'll, I'll, I'll leave this with you then uh, we don't want boring uh, events like Spa 21. We don't want to be hanging around like Monaco. We also want everything to be safe and nice and lovely. So Aidan Millward, YouTuber, a sim racer, new friend of Miss Apex podcast. Solve it for us. What do we do? <sighs> that's not an encouraging sound. I, I don't think you can. Oh, that's unless, not... unless you do something to the diffuser, like, like Matt was saying, or you do something, or you, 
you bring back something like an ultra super duper monsoon tire or mm. I, I I think I think for the foreseeable future, I, I think starting a race under full wet weather tire conditions isn't going to happen. If it happens later in the race, like it did in Russia last year, probably. I think that it's with with sponsors and legal and contracts and the billions of dollars that go into it. I think hands hands are well and truly tied, and Formula One has backed itself into a corner because of these constant multi billion dollar contracts it keeps signing. I want to. I think we need to. You know, we need a stat man here for wet races. But I'm sure there was a few seasons a while back where there was absolutely no wet races for several seasons in a in a in a row. And I'm wondering whether that has to do with scheduling and whether there can be more of an effort to not say race in Japan in monsoon season. <laughs> well, it's why it's why it's why Canada's in that weird bubble because if you ra- try to race in Canada in. October with the US Grand Prix, Montreal is far too cold. You try to race in April with Miami, it's too cold. It has mm. to be at the beginning of June, where the weather in, in Montreal is guaranteed to be at least 21 degrees. Yeah. It's why we don't race at Silverstone in yeah. November. <laughs> I yeah, I know. Uh, if it, for any uh, non Brits who've gone to Silverstone during the, the Grand Prix, it's always hot. But like that is like the only yeah. hot month. If you tried to race there any uh, other three time, three days of summer. Yeah, if you tried to race there any other time, you know you you would never get the tires fired up, or you'd have constant wet races. So I do wonder how much of an issue scheduling is. Well, you didn't solve the problem with just wild speculation. So I don't know how well you'll fit in. I think if you want to come back <laughs> on Mr. Apex more, an unearned arrogance during problem solving, uh, you might need to employ a little bit more of that. Just assume that your very simple solution will solve everything without looking at nuance. <laughs> I'll just, uh, well, if, if you throw enough at the wall, eventually some of it's going to stick, isn't it? So yeah. it's, uh, yeah, I, I think this is, <laughs> I think this is why a lot of these armchair fans don't get hired for anything. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> true. Uh, but I tell you what, uh, your your content over on your YouTube channel is very slickly produced. You clearly put a lot of work into it and you research, which is basically cheating. So can you tell us, uh, why should people go over to your channel? What's uh, what's up there at the moment? Uh, I, I, I did uh, a thing recently on uh, pit lane speed limits, how they came about because of, well, spoiler alert, because of Imola 94. Um, did a piece on the the Lotus Forty Nine, which is a little bit more, a little bit technical. Uh-huh. I, I think if you if you like not being shouted at for twelve minutes, <laughs> and, and you just prefer a chilled environment, it is just chilled. Like you just want just want it presented as it happened with no sugar coating or anything like that. Then yeah, maybe maybe you'd be into that. If you're not into that, that's fine. I, I don't really mind. It's you know, there's going to be people that that will watch some of the biggest YouTubers on the planet and be like, no, not for me. Right. That's cool. Right. Maybe I will do something that you will enjoy <laughs> later on down the line. But that's pretty much the, the basis of the whole channel. So it's like, you're right. Here's a thing. If you like it, fair enough. And if you're you right. Know. It is a relaxing watch. And this has been a very relaxing and informative chat. Aiden, thanks very much for dropping into the shed. No problem. And if you want to find more of Aiden's work, check out the show notes in the link below. And we'll head back to our broom cupboard. <laughs> Thanks, guys. It appears there's no easy uh, solution to this problem, if you'll pardon the pun. All we can do when it's wet is be patient and pack a brolly. Well, that's all for today's show. Thanks for spending some time with us. 
We'll be back next week with some more great off-season content. Until then, as Spanner says, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Mist Apex Podcast. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.